Hello and welcome to On Landscape. Uh, I'm sitting virtually here with Joe Cornish uh, and we are today chatting about a book we have both read over the last week, which is Beauty in Photography by Robert Adams. Uh, and I just need to look at the publishing date of this to see when it was written, because it's a series of, I think, essays and talks that Robert Adams gave over a period of time. Um, that's interesting. It doesn't actually have a publishing date on the front. I believe it was probably about late 70s, early 80s. Does that make sense Yes, you? you're, you're right. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning that Robert is no, is no relation of Ansel, as far as we know, although the surname is the same. The versions that we're looking at were, were revised in 1996. So you can see that there, is a, there have been some additions uh, that reflect uh, a few changes in technology. But having said that, it's still predates what we might regard as the as the digital revolution. Yeah, absolutely. And it, and it contains a series of essays. We're not going to go through all of them. There is a little uh, few sections in the back uh, where he talks about individual artists we might mention. Um, but there's also an essay on photographing evil, which I think we're going to skip. Didn't really uh, fit in with what we're trying to do. And I think most of what we're trying to do here is address what's on the, the front cover of the book, which is to do with beauty in photography and art yes yeah and it's a it's sort of an endless question really which uh will be uh no doubt replayed many many times over in years to come decades to come by photographers and artists um so uh i hope that we can we can shed a little light on it now yeah we should give a little bit of background about robert adams I and mean, he's a he comes from a literary background, doesn't he? I think he's an English teacher. Um, and so a lot of what he writes about comes from that literary philosophical tradition, I think. There's definitely elements of that. Exactly. Uh, in fact, you could say it's a philosophy of photography in, in many ways. And he was a practitioner himself, a very, very fine black and white uh, artist. Um, but yes, his his intellectual background is, is in education. Uh, in Yeah. And English in the English language specifically. I might try it as well uh, in this issue that's going to be related to this discussion. Do a little profile of Robert Adams and his photography as well, because that probably gives us a little bit of a, a background for people who are listening to this. Yeah. So um, the main sections we have in this are uh, uh, Truth and Landscape, which is the first essay, uh, and then an essay on beauty, an essay on criticism. Uh, and another short essay on what is new. So, uh, the, and we'll start with truth and landscape. And uh, we both plucked out one sentence in this, which was that he, and, and we should point out that this is Robert Adams' viewpoint. I don't think Robert Adams was trying to give a, an overall truth of everything. He was saying this is very much contextual to me. Um, so this, this sentence to begin with says, landscape photography can offer us three verities, geography, autobiography, and metaphor. Geography taken alone is boring, autobiography frequently trivial, and metaphor can be dubious, but taken together, the three kinds of information strengthen each other. Uh, I, th I thought that was quite, quite interesting. I, I completely agree. I think it's a brilliant, uh, well, I mean, it probably wasn't the first person to uh, to define it, but if we if we just review the the kind of core of that idea again, uh, that uh, geography, autobiography, and metaphor, uh, as as you know, I've uh, been writing some essays or some articles for uh, for the magazine, and uh, one of yes. them was on geography, uh, and one of them is going to be on metaphor. I must admit. I've missed the autobiography part, um, but uh, to be fair to Robert Adams, he's not trying to define uh, landscape uh, categories here. He's actually saying, what is the, the kind of core uh, of, of a landscape photograph if, if, it's, if it's one with depth and, um, and real ambition? Um, and I think what, what we see superficially is almost always going to be geography, first and foremost. That is to say, the appearances of the outside world, the landscape. And then autobiography and metaphor are a, a, a two uh, different categories, but they still illuminate what we're, what we're thinking about when we look at uh, photographs. And metaphor can be expressed in many ways through light, through composition, through symbolism and so on. 
uh, and through simply how the imagination interprets uh, the the scene before uh, before us, so not merely in the sense of uh, of the appearance, what what's beyond the appearance. But perhaps the most interesting of all is autobiography, mm. be- because really that's the that's the uh, the reflection, the kind of half felt, half seen reflection of of the photographer's vision. Uh, and though, of course, as we we know, we get to know about p- people whose work we love. We we'll find out what their perspective is. But I think uh, a photographer who I love, whose work I love greatly, I I, I think is a really interesting example. And that would be Peter Dombrovskis. And I, uh, you're a big fan as well. Yeah. Um, so there's a photographer whose apparent signature is actually very hard to read in the photograph because. Uh, that is actually part of his personality. He's trying to represent the the scene in front of us in an, a very transparent way, as if we were standing in front of a window, looking out into his into his world. Um, he does it so beautifully, both in terms of technique uh, and and uh, composition, that we're barely aware of his presence. And that is part of his autobiographical kind of reading of the land um, to be invisible to be simply the the portal through which we can step um, and I mean I think that's obviously corroborated by learning more about Peter as I have done um, since he died um, but uh, there you have it and I think any any photographer's work contains an element of autobiography based on on their value system on their yeah. uh, ethos if you will yeah, um, Robert Adams says, he said, behind the decisions the photographer makes are their own individual framework of recollections and meditations. And without knowing that background, there is no knowing whether the scene before you is characteristic of the geography, in short, whether it is true. And so you have to know a little bit about Peter Dombrovskis to understand that what you're see, seeing is trust trustworthy, as it were. Uh, and also the fact that he represents things so well is part of him. Yes, and of course that landscape, uh, the, the most of his work we associate with Tasmania, uh, is is one that was incredibly familiar to him. He he walked he walked across the island, and especially the wild areas throughout his adult life, and indeed you know through his teenage years as well, which is when he discovered the camera, uh, and so on. So, um, without wanting to get too deeply into Peter's life, uh, I bet that if we were to uh, look at the work of any of our favourite photographers, we'd find a parallel uh, story of sorts, uh, you know. And it is, yes, it's it's in, on one level or another the memories and reflections, the cultural references, uh, there, the stories that they read. And you know, as Ansel Adams said, um, the the Ansel Adams rather than Robert Adams on yeah. this occasion, um, you know, it's the the books you have read, the films you have seen, the music you've listened to, and the people you have loved. They've all influenced your work they've all they've guided you down the path so that at a certain point when you put your camera on a tripod and look at the scene in front of you you are framing your own values and not simply the scene in front of you yeah and i I think that it it reinforces this idea that that i suppose the artwork is an accumulation of a lot of what you've taken as well you know the individual photograph is what we deal with but a lot of that autobiographical comes through by the uh, ongoing selection of what we deal with, what we choose and what we choose to show and what we don't choose to show, etc. Absolutely. Isn't it? It's rather nice that uh, that the beauty of a work of art is that you could, uh, of any work of art, is that you could be drawn into it, whether it's listening to a wonderful symphony or reading a poem, not really knowing anything about the person. Uh, and just simply be uh, be struck by it, by its beauty, let's use that word. Uh, and find yourself then wanting to know more about the uh, the life of the person who's written, composed, painted, photographed that work, and uh, and so as you do so, that tends to enrich the whole whole experience again, and that's one way in which a real work of art stays alive. Yeah, I mean, another Robert Adams quote in, in here. He talks about the artist's presence in the work can convince us that its affirmation resulted from it has been tested by human experience. Uh, without the photography, the view is no more compelling, without, sorry, without the photographer, the view is no more compelling than the product of some anonymous record camera. 
a machine capable of a happy accident. Uh, and it's those human conditions that I think he's saying really define the truth with it, of the photographer. Yes, it's a it's very interesting actually because that uh, that example that you cite there uh, bring makes me what well, provokes me to think of the new topographics who are in fact contemporaries of, of Robert Adams. Uh, I can't remember the names of all the photographers, but there's some very good photographers among that group in the nineteen late nineteen seventies US, I think. And, and part of their kind of manifesto was to create images that, as it were, could have been made by, were completely neutral, as in, yeah. well, a machine could have made them. Of course, the camera's a machine. But it, it, the funny thing is that in that very kind of neutrality, they are making a, a point. They're almost making a kind of political statement. And, and actually, the truth is that the best of their photographs have a, wonderful quality of composition about them um yeah. that, that, that doesn't that completely defies that uh, that original concept so um i think it's probably always true that artists will be contradictory in a way in the, well the, the new topographics never really achieved it because the photographers work within it was so individual you could recognize the work by different photographers there yeah, um, and and Robert Adams as a member of New Topic. I don't think Robert Adams really wanted to be part of it. Essentially, he was drawn into it by from from how I understand things, rather like the work like Atje was drawn into the the art scene in Paris. Yes, yeah. Uh, I think just before we finish that point, because uh, uh, we obviously haven't looked at geography or metaphor in great detail, but probably we can pass them by. I think it's worth saying that at the end of that paragraph. Uh, Robert Adams makes a very uh, another further. Well, I think it's a very important point: is that is that these three kinds of information strengthen each other and reinforce what we all work to keep intact: an affection for life. Mm. End of sentence. And that's um, I think that's very important to me. At any rate, I see uh, that the creative process needs to be life affirming for it to have a have a purpose. Yeah. So, and that, and that precedes the next section, which is going to be about uh, beauty. Um, but just before we go there, there was a, uh, a section right at the end of this um, essay, uh, which, which I found quite interesting. It doesn't really fit in, but it's, it's that uh, gardens are strikingly like landscape pictures. Sanctuaries not from the truth, but of the truth. Paradise is the Persian word for walled enclosure which probably stands for the best synopsis of what a photographer sees through the camera. And I like that idea of the, the, the landscape photograph being a form of garden. It's a selection of things in the landscape with a boundary around the outside of them that the photographer has chosen and created. Is it, that's very interesting because I, I was thinking as you were speaking that many gardens, many tr traditional kind of Victorian type walled gardens are indeed rectangular as well yes. <laughs> so yeah. they, they're kind of referencing the camera in that way um this kind of like a, as you say a sacred space uh, an enclosed space which provides shelter and uh from the buffeting of of the winds of the world outside but still open to it um and it's a form of idealized it's an idealized form of landscape in a way isn't it mm. uh for, for many whether whether gardeners are thinking that I don't, I'm sure some do. Some probably just garden because they love gardening. But yeah. um, you know there is a form. There is probably composition. I'm sure many gardeners are thinking uh, about how do you know, they may again. It may not be a conscious thing, but the distribution of of the beds and the design and so on. Well, garden design it's a big thing. Isn't yeah, it? it is indeed. Yeah, and and I think that's that's what we do as photographers. We we. Are, which almost creates an idealization of what we see in the landscape. We want to, we take the best bits of what we can see and structure them in a way that, that satisfies us. You know, it's gardening, gardening without a shovel. <laughs> yes, I mean, I, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Um, it's interesting uh, that, that you know the word idealization is is one that certainly when I was an art student was uh, very problematic uh, because it would have been a major critique point. Um, you know, if if uh, they if if you were told you were being or you were idealizing that oh, way, idealistic, a def yes. a definite no, no no, and so on, and and then it, it would probably be um, conflated with sentimentalism and uh, uh, kind of irrelevance in other ways. Um, talk, talking about sentiment, sentimentalism and, and irrelevance, we should move on to 
beauty, possibly, do you think? <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's <laughs> an interesting, uh, uh, yeah. But uh, you may, that's a very good point because, it, in fact, Robert Adams himself, well, as I think you're going to explain, um, had a lot of problems in his younger day with the word. Yeah, I think there's a quote, I can't find the quote at the moment, but it's, uh, he said, for many years I found it embarrassing to use the word beauty while I, I still here. believing in it. I have it here, yes, it, Go on, it says exactly, he says, and, and this is in, uh, in context, but briefly, in certain photographs and paintings that opened my eyes, and I was compelled to learn to live with the vocabulary of this new site, though for many years I still found it embarrassing to use the word beauty, even while believing in it. And and that is an it's partly the academic background. I think it's a very difficult. Uh, I mean, I, I, I you know not an academic myself. You know, apart from my four years as an undergrad, um, and and so it, for me, I, I find it really hard to understand why it's such a problematic uh, concept. But there's no doubt that I think in in the world of the arts, literature, and uh, the other creative and um, uh, endeavors, liberal arts. Um, it, it's uh, it's problematic, and, and many professors and so on are very uncomfortable kind of promoting it. Yeah, and, and critics take great um, pleasure in ripping things apart, like you say, being called sentimental. Uh, and, and beauty seems to be... I think there's a fear of practitioners of art making things that are beautiful because they think the viewer might just see it for beautiful and not see what the actual thoughts are behind it, which I think is vastly underestimating the viewer. Well, I think the the, the trouble with uh, all of the anxieties that critics have throughout history is that when when the history of art is ever told, uh, looking backwards, and that's all all the reference we currently have, you will find that all great art has beauty. It's a, it's probably the common thread that that uh, and it need it needs to. That's a fundamental. Okay, sorry, this sounds like my personal manifesto now, but I do think that um, without it, art doesn't stick. It doesn't. It doesn't hold. It doesn't um, doesn't hold people's imaginations or um, or kind of intellect either. And you know, beauty is much more than just something that's that's superficially uh, attractive. You know, it's not just good design or um, or something pretty. Uh, to use yeah. a, a word that tends to be used pejoratively, um, is something much more than that, and uh, well, something that that hopefully affirms one's affection for life. You might have the quote in front of you here, but there is a quote that I mean, we should start. Robert Adams starts his uh, treatise on beauty by saying, uh, "The proper goal of art is beauty, and the beauty that concerns me is one of form, um, which is by form I presume he means composition structure." Uh, and the quote I was looking for is, why is form beautiful? I'm not sure if you have that quote there. I do, yes. Um, and it, uh, following that, that short sentence is, why is form beautiful? Because, I think, it helps us meet our worst fear, the suspicion that life may be chaos and that therefore our suffering is without meaning. Yeah. And, and actually, that's good. And you you make the the point trying to identify form because form with a capital F is uh, it's a bit of a again a bit of a liberal arts word, and uh, it can kind of mean anything you want it to mean. But it, I I would I would suggest it it means what we think of as as composition, that it or, or some a kind of order. Um, I, I use the word order with uh, with hesitation because order also implies everything has to be kind of geometric, and that's not true. Um, but what it needs to show is pattern, the pattern uh, of life that you observe in nature, uh, in the universe, um, in in some way, for for reasons that may be still a little bit hard to understand. Human beings feel very in need of of order, um, and maybe it is because uh, otherwise everything is chaos. Well, I was trying to think about this and think: Are there any? Are there any artworks that don't have this sense of form and structure? Uh, and even even the most complex art, and we've, uh, we've talked previously about Jackson Pollock. Um, initially, you look at Jackson Pollock and think, well, that's the very definition of chaos, isn't it? And, and yet it isn't. It was, I think there's, there's a lot of considered structure in his pictures that isn't immediately recognised. And in many ways, that's, that's redemptive in a way that beyond an obvious 
structure because it says that even chaos has some order. Yes, uh, exactly. Uh, and and uh, I, I think there's undoubtedly his work work is actually really, really sophisticated if you look carefully. Um, and I, I think it, it does reward uh, further investigation for that reason. But I think if we bring it back to, to landscape photography, uh, we we can see uh, that, that, that there's quite a, there's almost a kind of interesting schism, I think, in terms of, of composition. Um, it's very, uh, it, it, it's actually difficult to make good landscape photographs full stop, but it's difficult to make very simple ones and it's also very difficult to make complex ones. Um, I think you, you see in, in David Ward's work, for example, pictures that are superficially very, very simple, but actually are immensely com complex in terms of depth, spatial ambiguity, uh, meaning, and so on. Um, if, if we look at, say, yeah, some of Jan Tober's work, I don't know if you're familiar with that, Tim. Mm, uh, definitely. And uh, Elliot Porter uh, and Peter Dombrosius, um, you know, all, all, all three of whom photograph woodland and uh, chaotic understory and so on. But you look carefully and you start to, to, to def or to, to decipher um, and pattern and, and order um, throughout these kind of micro universes, which, which actually is really fascinating because it's again, it's about deciphering the jigsaw puzzle of, of life. Um, and, you know, I think we enjoy, we enjoy that process as well. Um, and, and so that there is form, there is form, I think there needs to be form in, in photographs in order to, uh, to find or to, to kind of generate meaning. Yeah, and I, I, I think uh, a lot of a lot of the artists work like Jan Turvers, where where there is chaotic. It allows the viewer to discover some of that order as well, to experience some of the uh, process of distillation that the artist may have seen while they were there. So in some ways, it can be more satisfying than seeing an already ordered image. Yes, and and actually, uh, I, th I think there's a lot of tension in in those unresolved strokes of the pen, as it were. Um, a friend of mine was saying the other day, you know, that, that there's a lot to be said for Paul Clay's statement that you take a line for a walk, and if you, especially in woodland photography, you can see that that process of uh, the lines that sort of apparently running around all over the place, sometimes overlapping, sometimes confusing. Uh, but but if there's, I think it, the eye, it's for the eye of the photographer to try to discern um, patterns and spaces that allow flow and and a, a sort of feeling of engagement. And in many ways, that that's the what makes it enjoyable to do and and really enjoyable to look at as well is to is is to find that that sense of of pattern somewhere uh, through the chaos. And because, after all, many, many landscapes are inherently very chaotic. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's that's part of, of um, the revelation of, of distillate, distilling something from chaos. It wouldn't be satisfying if things were already ordered. Um, leaving, and, and Western, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say just that, yeah, leaving room for interpretation is, is yeah. part of it, yeah. Uh, another Adams is sentence that... I find quite interesting. He talks about the goal of art is beauty. Then we can know if it has been reached by whether it reveals the form that we have seen, but have not paid adequate attention to. Successful art rediscovers beauty for us. Uh, I think this is the idea that it, it doesn't need necessarily be something have to be something absolutely new. It allows us to look at something differently. Uh, the artist recognizes something different and shows it back to us. Yes, uh, and, and after all, you know, if you think of human history, our, our ancestors, um, predecessors throughout history, have uh, there have been many aspects of life that remain common. All the things that we have to do every day, sleeping, eating, interacting together. Of course, we can't do that at the moment, but <laughs> maybe we can virtually. Um, yeah. But all, all the things that make us human are, are fundamentally similar. There are superficial differences in the clothing that we wear, uh, in 2020 obviously very different from those of 100 or 200 years ago um and you know if we go far enough back uh, to hunter gathering then life looks very different but you know within the cultural realms that we're talking about much of human experience is is ongoing is there are superficial differences but in many ways it's how 
it's redefining the the absolute truths that um, that that make art successful. And I think he also makes the point that a number of the great writers, Shakespeare, Sophocles, and so on, would be considered modern artists by any standards, in that they their work somehow, although it's of its time, allows allows it to be uh, allows that the universality still shines through and still yeah. strikes us as fresh today yeah works in any many contexts and I, and I think you see this in philosophy as well when when works are only relevant to their own moment they lose their meaning when the context is taken away and i suspect that beauty is a, a, a part of of that they fail to uh, as it were address that that's a like core value um, yes, and then they age uh, quickly and are certainly not uh, timeless. Um, I think one of the one one of the last bits in the Robert Adams section there, which I, I really liked, was um, about. I think he says a great work of art should also be measured not only by its freshness, and he was talking about the new, but also about its apparent ease of execution. Uh, and he talks about art the the way that it should be uses the word grace that art should appear um as if it, it just happened yeah where yeah. and so it's it's hiding the skills of the artist and i think that's what i've found quite satisfying about a lot of the artists i see paul wakefield is a good example of the scenes he sees look at a glance and i think i think ruskin talks about that doesn't he in his truth to nature uh caught in a glance yeah, and and you think, wow, that's just how it was. Yeah, and and it, yeah, um, the, I think there's a couple of uh, moving through this chapter. There's a couple of really interesting examples of that, and and perhaps a, uh, it helps to uh, to describe more clearly why why that matters. I mean, there's there's one example that I suspect most people listening will be able to relate to, which is about an Ansel Adams picture, uh, and this is this is Robert Adams now, um, so quote unquote. If we had been at the old church that evening in Hernandez, as the moon came up, we could surely have gotten a picture at least something like the one Ansel made. Or so in the presence of that and other fine pictures, we are deceived to think. So in yeah. other words, it's like, oh, well, that's how it was. Um, but boy, isn't it amazing? And yeah. and it's it's the supreme skill in in that example because we I think most people will probably be quite familiar with how difficult and how sudden that that picture suddenly that picture was made and to hop onto the top of his car and set up his tripod and a ten by eight camera and calculate the exposure based on his knowledge of the reflective values of the moon because he didn't have time to get his light meter um, and and still come away with a usable negative uh, from it uh, and the light changing as of course as he was watching and the, the, those beautiful clouds he managed to catch them in literally the first exposure he made so maybe there's a certain amount of myth making in that but it's a good example of how a picture that looks just right still requires great skill and uh, endeavor to do it isn't that the universal uh, insult to an artist is oh anybody could have done that well, that that's a yeah. Isn't that funny? Um, <laughs> that's a bit like you must have had a great camera. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Which well, I, I know we, we like to talk about the you know the the ultimate insult you could you could make to your your host or hostess who did all the cooking and saying you must have had a great saucepan, and nobody would ever yeah. say that. But it's something about photography that seems to attract that uh, that reaction, isn't there? But but yes, I mean in a way that's part of photography's great challenge you know is that um, because it, it, we lack the maker's mark uh, and we're, we're dependent on the eye of the lens to describe the scene in front of us the the picture that looks just right and looks easy is actually quite self-effacing in terms yeah. of of the photographer it's actually there almost as part of the commons and the, the photographer's role could e could easily be forgotten because of that Absolutely. Now, the next section that uh, we were talking about with Robert Adams was a section on criticism. Now, I, I, I didn't make any comments on this one, I, um, but I know you've you've looked at a few sections in this. 
Yes, yes, I found this. Well, the chapter's called Civilizing Criticism. Yes. Which is, it's actually very ambiguous when you come to think of it, isn't it? It could mean, uh, you could make, it could make you think, um, is, is it going to be a polemic about, the, about how to cr- civilize criticism? Or, or is it that criticism itself is civilizing? And I think the answer is it's probably a bit of both. Yes, so, he does talk about both through there. Yes. Um, there, well, actually, this is quite a good way to just follow up our previous point, um, because it, uh, in the early part of this essay, this is a, a quotation. And there is the frustrating nature of the medium itself. It is harder in photography than in painting to establish a recognisable style. This leads to desperate efforts to establish a style at any cost and in turn to the creation of technically accomplished but otherwise empty pictures that anger those who must write about them. And in a way, that's the, the problem there is, is simply that uh, the, uh, you, you can see, and we, I think we will have seen it, and we've probably all been guilty of it at one time or another, I certainly have been, of trying so hard to make pictures that are distinctive that, that actually then it's the, the, the attempt at style uh, actually just mars any any message or idea that might be in the picture and it becomes about style rather than rather than about the subject which surely is what matters in in photography yeah it goes back to what we talked about earlier about the the photographer is really the style of the photographer is the choice the choices they make which is influenced by everything that they've read and looked at previously it doesn't have to be a, a stylistic choice i think the, su- the successful successful artists are ones whose life is uh reflected in in their work it doesn't have to be obvious it could be extremely subtle but whose values whose ethics whose belief system emerges in the way that they see or the way that they play the piano or uh compose their poetry or whatever it may be and you know that's that very very careful and yet easy selection of words or form or light or sound that makes the work come to life. And uh, there's, a, there's a couple of interesting uh, further points in this uh, chapter on criticism. Um, one, one is this, criticism's job is to clarify art's mystery without destroying it. What yeah, that? that's pretty clever. Yeah. Isn't it? <laughs> and we, well, and we, we've talked about the the fact that it, it's a lot harder to make a uh, a review or a criticism of an image positive than it is to be critical of it. Is to knock it down. And I'm, and I've seen this in music. I used to write music reviews and band reviews, um, and read the enemy. Uh, and I think it was uh, Will Self who does the restaurant reviews. Yes. And he's. He said you can always be a lot more creative in a critical review than you can be in a positive one. In some ways, it's kind of more fun, isn't it? it, it it's fun being the clever clogs who can, you know, tear things apart. Um, it's always easier to be negative. This is another quote from Robert Adams, actually, uh, in this chapter. Uh, and I think that's important to remember for critics. It, it's, it's easy to be negative. It's actually more difficult uh, to... Uh, to, to help and and actually ultimately what is a critic's job well i think robert adams is very good on that he he tells us uh, let me see if i can find the right page what is the artist trying to do question mark does he or she do it was it worth doing and that's really what we're trying to unpick as a critic is is to do that without necessarily dismantling the mystery um, and the kind of room and space for interpretation that remains in the work. It's, it's really, oh, and that's one other one. So I'm sorry, I was just moving ahead quickly, but I just remembered uh, you'll be familiar with the writing of John Sharkovsky. And oh, yes. uh, yeah. he, you know, widely regarded as the kind of premier uh, curator and art critic of, uh, photography critic at least, of the late 20th century. Um, so this is in this is his Adams writing about Sharkovsky and how his uh, how his uh, contemporaries were very envious of him. Sharkovsky's writing has made him envied, but the irony is that his competitors seem to miss some of the most obvious keys to his success. Among these, 
is that he writes only about what he likes. It is a practice that cuts down competition from the start. To be clear about how and why something works is difficult, whereas it just turns one's whereas just to turn one's animosity loose on something weak is both fun and safe, because who can accuse you of being sentimental? Absolutely. So there, there he's really sort of saying that where Sharkovsky uh, focused on on work that he uh, really respected and appreciated, but it also gave him a chance to to help to promote and to v value and to nurture the values in art that he wanted to promote and rather than just simply knocking things down and actually i yeah. think that's a that's a wonderful attribute and help i mean that's a good curatorial attitude as well and that's that's essentially what he was doing he was curating this selection that he wanted and writing about them um and and you know artists are sensitive people that's if you're going to try and help them, it's better to choose the ones you like than tell them all the rest of the ones they don't like, which yes. there, are, there are hundreds of photographs that we don't like and very few we do. Exactly. Well, in fact, a summary of this is the very last sentence of, uh, of this chapter. It goes as follows. In the highest sense, surely a photography critic's most important job is to help photographers of promise defeat their only real enemies, which is their own bad pictures. Yeah, well, I like that. Yeah, another way of saying, you know, learn to, you know, look at your work critically and with the help of, you know, others of experience, you can you can learn to refine that and to appreciate what, what really is working. It's very difficult to be your own critic, as we know. Uh, and, and so actually feedback uh, is something that we all need help with. Yeah, yeah. So all feedback's contextual. And well, this is the difficult thing with feedback is any one person's feedback is still contextual. So really you only get to really learn about what other people think of your own work by speaking to quite a few of them. Um, I know I've found that is because you go to a few different people, ask them what they think, you get a different answer every time. Inevitably. Although, <laughs> yeah. What is Although, it? Yeah, it, it, well, it's a matter of opinion, isn't it? That's the... Uh... Yeah. That's a problem with art, and and I mean, I you and I have both uh, had to been forced to or whatever uh, judge competitions from time to time, um, and I've done a few distinctions assessments for the photographic Royal Photographic Society and so on. And a you know a common thread there is that uh, any any well organised um, competition or assessment process will use several different assessors, because if it's just down to one. It's the entire prejudice of one's one person, yeah. um, and so yeah, you you I think a sort of minimum of of three and and preferably a few more is is good to provide balance and and making that evaluation process collegiate. Of course, you can't do that if you just want to get feedback. Um, you have to go and seek it out usually individually from people. But um, yeah, that is still it's a valuable process and it's important to remember. It's uh, it's much more difficult. I would argue to assess or uh, to provide constructive critique um, about art as say well if you're analyzing mathematics uh, which of course is an incredible subject but it, it can be empirical you can yeah. prove it very hard to prove art one, one of the interesting things i found from judging competitions is that they, when you get to the end of it and people have chosen their favorite picture they generally have different reasons for liking it so it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's like there isn't a universal reason why it's considered a great picture. It's just that there are multiple parts of the picture that can attract people. And it's not always true, but I think it's quite an interesting observation. It is a very interesting. I mean, of course, it's also true that ju just as artists bring their lives to their pictures, so do critics and, mm -hmm. and assessors. Um, all our prejudices, all our baggage, and, and that baggage is, is, a, is a big problem if you want to be a fair assessor. I would think that for any art, artistic uh, academic dealing with students, uh, it's particularly challenging because it's really, really important that your feedback to students is positive um, and yet you know, constructively critical. Uh, and, and learning to manage your own prejudice is a big, big part of that. Yeah, very, very difficult. And, and I, never, I didn't really think about how difficult it must be so in a competition, you find you are, you have been hired for your personal views, but judging something like an RPS panel would be you really have to 
sit back a little and think more independently many of certainly many of the uh of the portfolios i've i've had to look at are of subjects which i find very difficult and mm. and often i haven't enjoyed the photographic style either so then I'm, I'm i'm thinking well i don't really know anything about the subject nor do i know about the photographer or the photography how on earth am i meant to and it's quite difficult but you know with with the with the support of one's sort of fellow uh, adjudicators um, or assessors, you, you know, you you try to use as much sensitivity and common sense as you can, and and you can still make a contribution. But uh, in a way, there's a place for the for the innocent, as it were, as well as the uh, the experienced on on a panel. Uh, we're moving on to the the last large essay in in uh, Robert Adams' book, which is to do with the the new i think what's the title Ma the making new? art new making art making new. art new that's right and it's uh, i think the premise of, of this is he's is, is reacting slightly to the uh, the era in which it was written possibly in the 80s where the, everything had to be new uh, i don't know sorry just uh, just wondering whether you can remember that tv program series the shock of the new I think yes, it was, I do. Yeah, yeah presented by by the art critic Robert Hughes, um, and yeah, made a big splash at the time. Most before there were you know hundreds of, of TV channels, admittedly, but it was it was yeah. I I personally feel that that is a very much a stance of uh, of what you might call the Western tradition in art. You know, is the the kind of what's new, and in a way that's driven by American culture. I have to say, yeah, uh, you know the, yeah. The, the, that that. Yeah desire for innovation and um, novelty uh, is is very uh, American. That's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. And I think it's helpful sometimes to put it into context. There's a continuous reinvention there, isn't it? I mean, we, if, in comparison with, I mean, we've mentioned this before in uh, the Far Eastern tradition, where there is a, a lot more respect for the shoulders on which you are standing. And uh, you'll spend a long time studying your mentor's work and then when you do create your own work, you don't depart that far from it, uh, or in most cases. it's That's really true. As, as far as I understand it, uh, not, not at all an expert on Oriental art, mm -hmm. but you can see that the, the traditions are very, very important. The idea of craft and of excellent technique and always having that foundation of technical expertise as the basis for your for your work, and I know the difference because having been to uh, to, to art college uh, in the nineteen seventies, we were not taught that way at all. In fact, there was no the, everything was as it were about intellectual and philosophical exploration, and didn't you know we weren't shown how to use a paintbrush, how to mix paints. How to, you know, how to do this, how to, nothing was how to. It was all, well, you know, it doesn't matter. None of that matters. That's all kind of just technique. Technique, yeah. believe it or not, was a dirty word at art school. Yeah, craft. People don't like craft, do they? Well, they they certainly didn't then. <laughs> no. I'd be interesting if anybody has recently left college, uh, can you tell us if that's changed or not? Uh, I, know, I know a few people who still lecture at college but I, I presume it hasn't changed that much i i would still yeah i would agree I, I presume it probably hasn't changed that much either uh although uh, i i think there are some uh who there are some painting teachers who you know who do value technique but uh yeah it's a it, as i say i think a bit of a western tradition thing um mm. and there are there are good reasons for it i mean there's you know being uh being challenged uh to to think um, independently, it's obviously we. And I, I think that's absolutely right uh, that we should do that. Um, but at the same time, I can't help feeling that somebody like David Hockney, you know, would not have been the excellent painter that he that he is without without technique. Um, yeah, and that that is true. You look at all the great painters of the twentieth century, and most of them were technically brilliant. So certainly Picasso. Um one one of the sentences in the the book uh robert adams says uh, i might paraphrase this but the the new seems to reject previous forms of art but you can't really reject them by being constrained by what they are uh or what they are not 
true freedom would really be a childlike innocence and independence of that previous art. Um, I don't think either is particularly healthy. I mean, a, a, a childlike innocence, I'm not sure how far you can go with that as an artist. And by rejecting everything that's gone before, that it doesn't leave a lot left. And I think it does end up in this uh, cul-de-sac of ever-decreasing areas that you can find to create new things. Yeah, well, I, 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 for my part, and, and I, I, I wasn't sure, this chapter was, it's got some wonderful quotations in it. Um, I, I found this perhaps didn't, didn't help me greatly um, in no. terms of understanding. But I mean, I think it's a fantastically interesting subject uh, because, you know, we, well, as we were saying earlier, I think we have a, a, a sense in which things are, are the same in human life and things that are different. And there's actually, to be honest, probably enough differences just to provide um, uh, art with a superficial difference even if it's made using many of the same techniques and compositional tactics and so on uh, as previous eras. I mean, one thing, you know, again, it's difficult to compare photography, but we we would really struggle to make pictures that look like, I don't know, Frank Meadows Sutcliffe um, yeah. or Henry Peach Robinson today, would we not? I mean, they, they just wouldn't. Um, I I think, too, that, that photography is a special case. You know, it, it has... The basis of photography still for for many of us, certainly for me, is just a fascination with the appearances of the world as it yeah. as it is. Um, so there's always that element of what you could call geography, uh, e even yeah. if it's the geography of, um, you know, of, of a house interior or the appearance of people. Uh, that there's always a, a kind of difference there. But coming up with completely different aesthetic solutions is a very, very big ask. I would say. Um, I mean, we we in our era have actually different solutions to Robert Adams. You know, Robert Adams was working, I think, probably with uh, large format film, black and white, in pretty much in the you know the kind of Adams uh, Ansel Adams tradition. Um, and whereas for for many contemporary photographers, are far more likely to be shooting digitally with super flexible raw files um, with you know a very very different set of restraints or perhaps lack of restraints that's that's the issue i think yeah it's it's um the constraints uh, are one of the important things about photography in many ways uh, yeah exactly i mean you think of diane arbus is one of the photographers who robert adams refers to quite a lot and one of the interesting things about this book is although he was a landscape photographer Many, if not most, of the examples, with the possible exception of Minor White and G.A. Hickman, are yeah. actually by photographers who photographed the human scene more. Yeah. Uh, Diane Arbus and Walker Evans, for example. But Diane Ar Arbus, in particular, whose work is should be familiar to any any student of photography, um, medium format film, black and white negative. It's a wonderful incredibly sophisticated style that she developed in a relatively short life um and, and and of course these really the very very striking pictures are very much of their time and so on but they they also represent a massive restraint she worked within these parameters probably with one camera one lens um the square format the, the black and white negative developing tradition and the darkroom um, and that restraint she made a great virtue of. And then she restrained herself further by her choice of subject matter. And I yeah. think I think there's there's a lot to be said for that. Maybe the shock of the new that you see in her work, it, it, it simply comes from the the frankness of it, the honesty of it, the the directness with which she confronts the world with her camera. I think there's there's something to be learned there. It's her life and where she, how she chose to spend it is the is yeah. the shock of the new there, isn't it? Definitely. Absolutely. I think I think Robert Adams at the end says, uh, "Are not the limits of an art form its strengths? Where is the statue with sound in the modern era? Where is the three dimensional painting? So is straight photography its major advantage that it is connected?" Uh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah, this is, for me, uh, yes, that's true. Um, I, I, you know, I, I think photography, the beauty of photography now is it, it, in, the, in the hands of some of our contemporaries, it's 
turning into an amazingly artistic medium that can express uh, the, the world of the imagination as well. Um, but for those of us who love to work in the eyewitness tradition, I think that remains important. And uh, well, I won't say it's universal, but because I think I'd be, you know, that would be uh, a statement too yeah. far. But I, I think there's a, a value, there's an enduring value, let's say, in, in working to the eyewitness tradition, which is why, you know, when asked, as I am fairly frequently, I don't know about you, but whether you you manipulate or remove things from your pictures, you know, the answer to that in my case is almost always no. Yeah, I don't remove yeah. things. It, I, you know, I will change the emphasis in pictures, but I actually still like the fact that there's stuff in the picture that I might not personally like. That is part of it. That's part of uh, what makes it. Uh, and although we're not going through the back end of the book, which goes through uh, Frank Gilker and Minor White and another couple of photographers, yeah. I, I did want to pick out a quote from uh, Minor White that he references, which is, the spring-tight line between reality and photograph has been stretched relentlessly, but it has not been broken. These abstractions of nature have not left the world of appearances, for to do so is to break the camera's strongest point, its authenticity. And I think, I think most great photography still captures that. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I think that's... Um, I, I, I've written about it many, many times, uh, including in my day books from 30 years ago, uh, about the, uh, the desire to remain within the eyewitness tradition. You know, the, a photograph is not reality. It is a two-dimensional recreation of it and so on, and, and it's only an illusion. But that that link with reality is a, a fundamental part of its power. And it's really interesting, actually, to me that Minor White, who, after all, also works in black and white and and whose work is often quite abstracted, uh, is is so devoted to the idea of, of the authentic, authenticity of a photograph. Um, and I, I think that that does give a, a certain. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I find that really helpful and, and a, a very interesting point that Robert Adams, you know, was to repeat in this book. Um, well, I think that sort of concludes our general meander through through the Robert Adams books. I mean, I've really enjoyed reading it and, and thinking about how it can apply. And uh, and thank you very much for taking part in the discussion. It's been it's been very interesting. Oh, it's a, a pleasure, Tim. I hope other people might might feel inspired to have a look at it. It's not a it's a really slim volume, isn't it? You could literally sit down and read it in an afternoon. Um, yeah. So it, it's not challenging in that respect. It's lots. It's dense. You can really get your teeth into it, and you can. You don't have to agree with everything, but it certainly gives. A, it's a real a kind of fascinating take on on the importance of, of beauty, of art, and how photographers can uh, better understand their medium. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you.